Well, this morning, I want to welcome you. My name is Chris. I'm one of the elders, the pastor here at the church. So if you're visiting with us, we're very blessed that you would take the time to be with us. We pray that you will be blessed and strengthened and encouraged. The upper room will stay in this morning because we have a special guest speaker. Uh, So you'll be in the main service. Uh, This morning, we have uh, our very dear friends, my pastor uh, and mentors to me and Donna for 35 years now, Robert and Sue Grant with us. Uh, Many of us have known Robert even longer than that, but uh, God joined our hearts together in 1988. He was with us just a few months ago. Uh, We had a privilege of having him twice this year, but Sue wasn't able to be uh, with him that Sunday. So she's here this morning. And so I want you just to welcome Sue. Would you welcome her? Express your gratitude for her being here. Sue is uh, such a blessing to me and Donna. We are very grateful that she could be with us this weekend. And we've had a wonderful weekend of fellowship and enjoyment. Robert and I got to be at the Fiesta yesterday, and uh, it's been a great weekend. Uh, Robert is uh, a mentor to many of us, to Jamie and to me, pastor, discipler to us both. He has been largely responsible through the Holy Spirit uh, for helping us understand a vision of what it could be to be an Abbey church, where you had an organization like Boy the Ball that was reaching out in the community, and a church, a spiritual house that people could be welcomed into as they're coming to belief in God, they could belong. And even now, a school added to that that's very missionally minded and reaching into neighborhoods and to families all around us. I, I dare say we will have other things added to our Abbey-style church where people get to participate in the life of what's happening. And Robert's vision around that with Jamie and I has been very instrumental in how we have formed that kind of vision as being an Abbey church. So I want you to understand how important he is to me. I've heard some people say recently how important spiritual fatherhood is. And... Uh, We are grateful as a community to have so many amazing spiritual fathers and mothers among us. Uh, Of course, Curtis and many of our other elders share that responsibility. But I want you to say, I want you to understand that that Robert is my spiritual father. And I'm very grateful for him. And so I would like for you to please welcome him, Dr. Robert Thank you, Chris. Uh, it was a delight to be out at the Fiesta yesterday, uh, and I was a Debbie Doubter because when we left here, it was pouring down rain, and I was trying to imagine what in the world the uh, Fiesta is going to be like with a, a deluge, and it was foggy and it was rainy, and by the time we got out to Sarah Court. There were more kids running around than I had seen on any previous occasion. And a great time was being had by all, and the volunteers were blessed. And I was so grateful for the opportunity to be back out there and to be involved in that effort. And so my hat's off to all of you who gave your time and energy. And uh, even the moment when they did have a couple of minutes of of significant rain, they all had to run under these uh, awnings that had been set up over the grills and things like that. And so even for a few moments, they had a more intimate sense of community. (laughs) 
everybody had to huddle under these tents and get up close to one another. So there's an upside to that too. I, I want to affirm uh, something that took place here earlier. And for the sake of people who may not be familiar with it, uh, there was uh, uh, a handmaiden of the Lord came forward and gave a message in an unknown tongue. And that's biblical. And then uh, Roger gave an interpretation to that, uh, that message, it, which is designed for edification and comfort and your uh, enlightenment. And the essence of that word was that you're opening the way for entering into things that are unseen and things that are eternal. And my mind was quickened to a verse in Psalm 50. He who sacrifices thank offerings honors me. And he prepares the way so that I may show him the salvation of God. That when you enter into the sacrifice, that is not that interesting. Sacrifice of thanksgiving. And when you sacrifice thank offerings. So when you come before the Lord and you give him thanks and you give him praise because he's worthy, whether you're feeling like it or not. He who sacrifices thank offerings honors me. And you could stop right there. But it goes on to say, and he prepares the way so that I may show him the salvation of God. It's, it's uh, where are you, Roger? Where are you sitting? You're in here somewhere. I don't know whether you saw what I'm saying, but it's like when you, when you offer thank offerings and praise, you are creating a highway for him to come in and to make himself known. It breaks you through into the unseen and to the eternal. And uh, that is not an attempt to add to what was already been said adequately. It's to affirm that activity of the Holy Spirit. And so for those of you that may not be familiar with that, that's what was going on. And a nugget, a seed was dropped into the midst that you'll be able to carry away and think about and it will make a difference to you. Well, that was a rabbit trail, but thank you for in, in, indulging me. I couldn't resist. It's customary at this time of the year, Advent, and some churches acknowledge that and celebrate it more than others. Uh, and you don't have to, but I think it's nice. The Advent wreath, which sends a signal. This is the second Sunday of Advent. And there were scripture readings and things that are appropriate 
but it, it's the Advent wreath and the season of Advent is anticipation, Adventus, uh, the anticipation of a coming or arrival. And it's customary, has been over the centuries of the church, that during Advent that there are readings from the Old Testament and particularly readings from the prophet Isaiah. And largely because Isaiah is the most prolific of the prophets in terms of his messianic predictions. And uh, I'm going to read one of those from uh, chapter 9 of Isaiah. And I'm going to truncate this. I'm I'm going to do like verses 1 and 2 and then uh, skip on down to verse 6. Uh, Nevertheless, I read from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, if you want to know. Uh, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. And picking up in verse six, for to us, a child is born. To us, A son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And for the gospel reading, I'm going to jump ahead 700 years from the time that Isaiah made that proclamation, that prophetic word, that prediction of what was going to come. A light's going to dawn. 700 years later, Jesus stands and he says, when Jesus spoke to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So there's a direct connection of Isaiah and 700 years later, Jesus standing and saying, I am the light of life. He who follows me will never walk in darkness. And the theme of both of these portions of scripture are darkness 
and light. That's what it all boils down to. Those who are walking in darkness will see a great light. One of the reasons we read the Old Testament prophets is to help us appreciate the condition and the state of life for the Israelites, for the people of God uh, at the time, particularly following the reign of Solomon and the glory of Solomon's temple. And without getting into the weeds on it, I, I think what precipitated this and having no idea what was in Solomon's mind to have 700 wives. <laughs> and predominantly wives from foreign nations. I, I don't, I'm not ready to get into all that. I'm just saying that that's what the scripture records. And with all of those wives came trinkets and gods and goddesses that were brought into proximity to the people of God and to the temple of the Lord. And then we see the divided kingdom that follows and this fracturing that takes place in Israel with Judah in the south, with only the tribe of Judah and Benjamin remaining there, and then the rest of the tribes of Israel going north to Israel. And so there's a divided kingdom, and within just a couple of generations, I want you to think this through with me because it's hard to get my mind around this. People who had seen the glory of God, people who had been the recipients of such an uh, incredible heritage of God's divine intervention and power and demonstrations of his strong right arm and deliverance through the ridge. I mean, it goes back. The legacy is huge. And yet within a couple of generations... Just a couple of generations, they were worshiping at Asherah poles. And the Asherah poles represented Asherah, or I believe the uh, Aramaic is Ishtar, the goddess of fertility, and was taught and believed to be the wife of God. And they worshiped the goddess of fertility. If you could imagine this, of going from being worshipers of the almighty God with his glory being present to bowing down to Asherah poles and worshiping goddesses. And beyond that, unfathomable as it is, offering 
their sons in fire as sacrifices to Baal. How does that happen? And how does that happen in just a few generations? It would be like some of you younger ones, you left the area and you came back to Lawrenceville and you say, I want to go by that church where we used to worship and sing and have such a glorious time. And you walked in and there were Asherah poles erected that people would worship. And there were cauldrons with fire blazing where you could offer your children as living sacrifices. And there was no word of God. And there was no presence of God. It was just darkness and gloom. It's unconceivable, inconceivable to me. A couple of quick verses in Ezekiel 10, it says the glory of the Lord departed from the temple. And the, the paraphrased version of this is the Lord Almighty saying, I just can't do this anymore. In Amos, after persistence, after sending the prophets, after declarations and the call for repentance and to leave the Asherah poles and leave the altars and the high places and come back to the living God to worship him. What did they do? They stoned him. They spurned him. They turned him away. And the prophet Amos, he says, I will send a famine throughout the land. Not a famine of food or water, but a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. You do know you're spoiled, don't you? Now you can say amen or oh me, but say something. <laughs> you're spoiled. And I'm glad you're spoiled. And by being spoiled, what I mean is that you come here every Sunday and you can count on a faithful presentation, an exposition of the word of God. There is not a famine of the word in this place. It is held up, it is taught, it is preached in, in the Bible studies and throughout the week, the opportunities that people have to be exposed to the light of scripture is sometime put it up on the wall, Chris, so people can just see how much opportunity there is to, to ingest and to digest and to inwardly digest the scriptures. There is no famine of the word of God here. But it was then. And the 400 years between 
Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and the arrival of Jesus were years where the word of God was scarce, where there was longing and a crying out for a deliverer, a Messiah who would come and set them free and not only set them free, but restore them to their glory, restore them to being the splendor of the Lord. They were walking in darkness. I, I appreciate what darkness is. I know what it is to get up in the middle of the night and there not be any lights in the room and it's completely black and it's dark. And, and I get up and I proceed uh, into the bathroom to get some water. And the next thing I know, I've got a crease in my forehead where I walked into the door jam because I couldn't see where I was going. I know what it is uh, on days, uh, times and seasons when I was traveling more than I am right now, where I'd be in different hotels on uh, different cities and I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I, I wouldn't know where I was. I'm thinking, where am I? And then I'd get up and try to find my way to the facilities and walk into the wall. That is a kind of darkness. I, you know, I was curious. When you and uh, your sons went out camping, was it dark? It was dark. And you had to find your way out to the woods. And you were dependent on a flashlight or a lantern or something. You know what darkness is? I mean, this is a, uh, we're describing darkness. Darkness does not exist on its own substance and character. Darkness is simply the absence of light. There's no, there's no light. That's what darkness is, is the absence of light. And uh, we were talking about natural darkness but there, there's a worse kind of darkness. When you're wandering around with wrong values apart from God, you don't know where you're going and you don't know how to get to where you don't know where you're going. That's a worse kind of darkness. That's what Isaiah is talking about. That's what he's anticipating that a light is coming. When I was uh, in my early 20s, I was walking around in darkness. I was reading philosophers. I was... Uh, I was doing things like meditating on the sound of one hand clapping. <laughs> so 
Zen. So I meditated on the sound of one hand clapping. You know what I figured out about the sound of one hand clapping? I have no idea what that means. But I would read philosophers. I was reading Ayn Rand. I was reading Catcher in the Rye. And I, I kind of fancied myself as this loner philosopher in life. But I was lost. I was in the dark. I did not have a clue. And then I met my wife on a blind date. Yes, she was the one that was blind. <laughs> I met her on a blind date and um, she was in her own darkness. So we, we were two people lost in darkness that God was merciful enough to arrange our meeting and I, I fell in love with her. And I, I, you know what? I, sometimes I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I'm not stupid. And I said to myself, the next weekend when I saw her after we had our blind date, I said, I'm going to marry you. She was not getting away from me. And she didn't, thank God. But we were married uh, a few months later, fought like cats and dogs, and there was darkness all around. And she introduced me to people that were associated with her parents, who were wonderful followers of Jesus. And I went to a meeting. I went to, an, at their invitation, I went to a meeting, and these were people that when they started talking to Jesus, they talked to him like he was right there in the room. And they were so full of joy and excitement and they were excited about Jesus and they had light. They had light in their life. Because the one who says, I am the light of the world had come to dwell in them and they were like a city set on a hill that burned bright. And when I got around them, you know what their light did to my darkness? What? Tell me. Talk to me. It revealed it. it, it and I thought to myself, I know we got young kids in here, so I'm not going to say it like I really said it. But I just, my thought was, Get me the out of here. Because I, I, my darkness got up against light. And I walked away relieved to, to, to get out of that place. But I had been had. I'd gotten up next to the light. And I had seen the light. And I'd touched the light. And I'd been exposed to the light. And it wasn't too many months after that that I called out on the light. 
And I called out at the top of my lungs in a meeting like this one. I just called out, Jesus, Jesus. So I said, I didn't ask for church membership card. I didn't want to join a club. I, I didn't want to get my secret Dakota ring. I just wanted him. The one who said he was the light of the world to come into me. And he did. I called out on his name at 22. And the light of the world flooded my heart. And I spoke in a heavenly language the rest of the night. That's all. I called out the name of Jesus and then he gave me a heavenly language that I spent the rest of the evening uh, being exercised in. And the, my pants that I had on that night were, got all shiny on the knees because I was kneeling at an altar rail. And I worked, I worked that altar rail up and down. And I got up and the darkness was gone. The darkness got dispelled from my life because the light of the world had come in. And I've been walking in that light ever since. And thank God that if I'm going along and all of a sudden I start to drift over here, I get this sense, oof, it's getting kind of dark over here. I want to get back over here in the light. And the same author of the gospel wrote the epistle that says, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we will have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse us from all sin. So this morning on this second Sunday in Advent, as we've considered the prophet who talked about the light. And we considered the gospel and the declaration from Jesus that he is the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. It all boils down to us wanting to have the light of the world in us and that we're walking in the light that he offers. Not only now in this life, but we anticipate his coming again, his return, the light of the world. And there's a song 
little worship chorus that I don't, I don't know whether I would call it a worship chorus or is it a prayer? And I, Justin and whoever's going to help me out here. <clears throat> I want you to listen to the words. And then I'm, I want to ask you to uh, sing it with me. And you may not know the melody line, but you'll get it really quick. But as you sing it, you're singing a prayer. You're giving expression to a prayer. And there's not a person in this room that can't sing it with heartfelt meaning and longing. But I am especially interested in the person or persons who are here this morning who maybe have never prayed the prayer, who've never asked the light of the world to come in. And keep in mind, I'm not talking about joining a church. I'm not talking about anything other than having the person who is the light of the world come into your life and to dispel darkness. If you got darkness today, I don't care what it is. The light of the world is here to come into your life. And when that light shows up, the darkness has to go. They can't coexist. The words read, I want to walk as a child of the light. I want to follow Jesus. God sent the stars to give light to the world. The star of my life is Jesus. In him, there is no darkness at all. The night and the day are both alike. The lamb is the light of the city of God. Shine in my heart, Lord Jesus. That's our prayer. Shine in my heart, Lord Jesus.